Welcome to the Bunker Daily. Have you had your bleach today? Because, as we all know, a tot of Domestos a day keeps the Covid away. Yes, this is a new voice. Hello, I'm Justin Quirk and I'm making my debut in the Bunker Cinematic Universe. Please be nice to me. The longer the corona lockdown lasts, the more restive parts of the population across the world become. In the UK, non-compliance amounts to the odd illicit barbecue, but in the US, small gatherings of armed protesters, encouraged by the President, have become national stories. And it's driven by a cocktail of disinformation, conspiracy theory, extreme libertarianism and quack science, much of it coming direct from Donald Trump and the Republican media. Will the COVID crisis make or break the conspiracy mindset? Why do people find conspiracy theory so attractive? And should you beware listening to this podcast on a 5G phone? With me to talk it over is Professor Stefan Lewandowski, a cognitive scientist at the School of Psychology at the University of Bristol and an expert on misinformation and post-truth politics. Hello, Stefan. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hello, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. The inject yourself with bleach moment, as we have to term last week's press conference, seemed like the final straw. But we've seen lots of these final straws around Trump previously, and they never seem to stick. What makes people who are still in the tank with him believe such obvious untruths? Is there a desire or a need to believe the impossible? Well, that's a great question. And I think there are two parts to the answer. Uh, the first part is that whenever there is a <clears throat> frightening situation in which uh, people have lost control or they have a sense of having lost control, they invariably uh, resort to conspiracy theories to explain the situation. And uh, the moment you do that, then all sorts of otherwise not very plausible things become believable. So I think that's one thing we have to understand in the specific context now, the background of a global pandemic that has turned the world upside down. People are scared. People are looking for assurances. People want to have a sense of control. And whenever that happens, some proportion of people will resort to conspiracy theories. This belief that COVID was a hoax or a conspiracy, as you say, there may be very good reasons why people are erring in that direction, but that conspiracy seemed to take root almost immediately in the US in a way that it didn't really over here. Um, so why there and less so in the UK, do you think? Right. Good question. And that's getting me to the second point, that uh, as far as Donald Trump is concerned and also other populist politicians around the world, including in the UK, um, their lies are ignored or indeed believed because their followers are more interested in what they perceive to be authenticity than honesty of a politician. Let me try and explain that a bit. Um, one of the things about Donald Trump um, is that he seemingly says whatever he thinks in the moment he is uh, signaling his contempt for the quote-unquote establishment um, all the time by talking about things like the deep state and the fake media. And in so doing, what he does is to signal authenticity to his followers. He is, he is pretending to be or he's building up this persona of a person who's defending the real people, quote unquote, against the establishment. And in a situation, in a society where a number of people feel left out or feel left behind by the democratic system, 
that kind of authenticity, that signaling of authenticity can find traction. And the moment that happens, there's evidence to suggest um, that people then accept lies from a politician as being a nudge-nudge, wink-wink signal to them that they're on their side. So I think that is what's happening with Donald Trump because he's been making false claims at the rate of, you know, 12 or 20 claims a day that were false. Um, and yet it hasn't made a dent to his approval ratings. I mean, <clears throat> despite the size of this story, and, you know, it's obviously it's travelled across the Atlantic, we're talking about it this morning, a lot of these gatherings are relatively small. You know, we're looking at left fewer than 300 people in many cases, and it's the usual heavily armed doomsday preppers you'd expect. Yet it's become this national story. Why is that? And should the mainstream legitimate media have ignored these protests, given the relative size of them? Well, first of all, I think you're right. The overwhelming majority of Americans, the last I heard, uh, is in favor of uh, saving lives over in preference to opening the economy too soon. However, it's a very difficult choice for the media in this kind of situation. I mean, if there are some guys, you know, wearing machine guns or whatever they are, you know, these, these uh, automatic rifles, if they show up in front of a state house, well, it's extremely difficult to ignore that. Um, so I think the media do have a responsibility, unfortunately, to, to record and report on these incidents. Leading on from that, we saw <clears throat> during the 2016 election, there was a very clear sense in which the public space was being gamed to some degree with rival demonstrations being set up on both sides by malicious actors to foment social unrest. We saw this with, you know, fake Black Lives Matter marches, um, you know, fake anti-Hillary Clinton demonstrations being set up. Is it probable that something similar is going on here. I mean, when we look at who's organising these marches, there's this kind of ecosystem of alt-right grifters and Trump advisers seem to be somewhere in the background of these. Oh, absolutely. There is no question. I mean, we do know that. This whole uh, movement that is happening now, this sort of very, as you said, the number of people who turn out uh, is actually quite small. Um, but that whole sort of giving an appearance of a large number of people opposing the lockdown is carefully crafted and engineered. I mean, we know uh, that there are organizations behind that with considerable amounts of money. And you're absolutely right. They're funded by the same people who were funding uh, attacks on Hillary Clinton in 2016. So, so that sort of ecosystem of uh, extreme right, uh, science-denying um, extremism, that ecosystem is alive and well, and, and the fingerprint is wherever you look. For example, one of the conspiracy, one of the most outrageous conspiracy theories we've seen about the coronavirus is that 5G uh, conspiracy, which is, well, it's exotic at best, uh, the claim is that somehow 5G mobile signals are causing this virus. No one actually knows how that would be possible, but never mind. The theory has been put up on YouTube and it has been enthusiastically embraced by a certain number of people. Well, it turns out that if you trace back the origin of that uh, particular theory, 
Then what you find is that it came from a physician who attended a pseudo-scientific conference in Las Vegas and gave this uh, uh, bizarre talk there. A physician, by the way, who happens to be on suspension in California, his license is under suspension because of gross misconduct. And the interesting part is that the, the pseudo-scientific conference that he attended was also attended by none other than Andrew Wakefield, whom you may recall is a disgraced former British physician who uh, launched this false claim that there was a connection between um, childhood vaccinations and autism. It's a long and painful story, but basically there was dishonesty, there was fraud, there was a conflict of interest. Uh, and it was all ultimately made up. But here we already see a connection between the 5G conspiracy theory and anti-vax. And then it turns out other people at the pseudoscientific conference belong to an outfit that has a long history of uh, not just climate science denial, but that has also given the platform to people who deny the link between HIV and AIDS. So you have a whole package there. You have a whole package of, of the same cluster of people denying the obvious link between HIV and AIDS, climate science, vaccinations, and guess what? Now they add 5G to their repertoire. And so that's always the case uh, in these politically challenging moments that there is an infrastructure of contrarian individuals uh, that kicks in gear and is is trying to undermine evidence-based policies. When you mention, I mean, that rather exotic buffet of beliefs that tend to, you know, it, there seems to be a degree of if you believe in one, you'll believe in all of them. They, they often sort of come together and overlap. I, I think what surprised people with some of the scenes from those demonstrations is the sheer vehemence of those beliefs. And it's obviously crossed over from something that 10 years ago would have seemed like a sort of slightly amusing sideshow on a Louis Theroux documentary to people literally standing there with banners saying sacrifice the weak. Um, do we have a, is there a psychological profile of the person that not only believes in this stuff, which as you explained is possibly a response to, you know, global upheaval and, you know, a sense of a lack of control, but is willing to go out and take such an obnoxious stance so publicly on behalf of those beliefs? Yeah, well, certainly, you're certainly right that that has changed dramatically. And um, I think one of the reasons it has changed is because the norms that have governed society, in you know, certainly in the United States, but many other Western countries, have been eroded or uh, replaced uh, in the last five years because of this outburst of populism. That is the election of Donald Trump and also the Brexit vote uh, here in, in the United Kingdom. And <clears throat> Donald Trump, there's evidence that shows that, has created a situation in which previously impossible or unacceptable behaviors have now become mainstream. And racism and this sort of sacrifice the weak, these fairly fascist attitudes have now been given license by Donald Trump, uh, either directly or indirectly. So I think that is something that is new now. Um, but of course, these attitudes have always been present. It's just that they were not condoned and no one 
was prepared to express them in public. It is only now that they have become uh, permissible again. And in my opinion, we must do everything we can to reverse these tragic tendencies and to make them uh, unacceptable again as quickly as possible. I mean, we've seen Trump trying very, very hard to legitimise his demonstrations. He was talking at the back end of last week about, you know, I've never seen so many American flags. These people love our country. Um, What do you think is the advantage for Trump with these demonstrations? Because even among Republicans, um, registered Republicans, by the latest Quinniac polling, 70% of them support the stay-at-home orders. So he's not articulating a widely held or popularly held position here. What does he perceive that he gains from encouraging this fringe of his base? I can only speculate, but I think I can give you an educated guess. Uh, and the first, the, the departure point for that guess is um, the fairly obvious uh, hypothesis that Trump will do anything to get reelected. And he has, until now, tied his electoral fortunes to the performance of the economy. And that was going to be his major uh, strength going into the campaign. Now, with the economy shut down, people are filing unemployment claims like never before in history and and all the developments at the moment, um, that strength is gone and is out the window and he cannot campaign on that anymore. So for him, it is utterly essential to restart the economy and to be able to say that by November or October or whenever the campaign really gets underway, that we're past this pandemic and the economy is restarting and we're going to come out of it, uh, you know, America is great and all that, the usual stuff. So I think he is absolutely desperate for, for that to happen. And, well, the only way that can happen is if you do sacrifice the weak and you reopen the economy and you pretend the pandemic doesn't exist and you hope that somehow people are okay with uh you know, large numbers of other people dying. So I think that's why he's supporting the um, those demonstrations. But I also think that there is another component to that, and that is that, again, he is trying to change the societal norms. At the moment, as you said, even Republicans are very much in favor of uh, the stay-at-home orders. But... By having these demonstrations, and as you noted, they're reported in the media uh, a lot, by having those demonstrations and by sort of offering a nudge-nudge, wink-wink level of support, uh, what can happen is that those societal norms change. It is quite possible that this will ultimately make people believe that we should reopen the uh, economy. And, of course, the moment that happens and the moment Republicans in their majority are favoring an opening of the economy, then Trump is in a position where he can accuse the Democrats of uh, being the party that is against freedom and against economic prosperity. So I think I think what I'm saying is that these demonstrations are just a, a tool uh, to turn the stay-at-home orders into a wedge issue that, uh, you know, Trump can polarise and hold against the Democrats. But given that, um, I would say the whole of the last five years, I mean, really, since he first announced his candidacy, he's run a post-truth campaign and a post-truth almost existence. 
Is there a chance that COVID is the moment where that approach runs out of road? Because finally in a virus, he has an opponent who he can't smear, he can't lie about, he doesn't care what he says, he doesn't care what he, you know, what innuendo he levels at it. Could this be the moment where his modus operandi sort of runs out of road, do you think? Absolutely. It could be, uh, totally. However, at the moment, the evidence for that is still relatively weak. If you look at uh, his approval ratings, they have been dropping over the last few days, um, according to opinion polls. But they haven't gone all the way to the basement. Quite on the contrary, the if you look at the 538 aggregator of opinion polls, then his current approval ratings are still well within the range of previous dips through his presidency. So at the moment, in in terms of approval, he has not suffered um, a great deal. However, it is possible that that uh, disinfectant moment may um, may have some consequences and may get some people to turn away from him. And we'll, we'll find out over the next week or two. And so to take a slightly longer view and uh, with the caveat that projecting anything forwards at the moment is something of a, a fool's errand, but if you could uh, indulge us, um, crises always expose the strengths and the weaknesses of a country, both in terms of its infrastructure, but also its information systems. Um Essentially, can you run a functioning democracy when a large minority of your voters and population are determined to ignore facts instead of comforting conspiracies? So really, is America fit for purpose in the information age? Well, it's a very good question. I'm tempted to answer the first one, namely, can you run a democracy like that? I'm I'm tempted to say no, Um, you can't. However, (laughs) if you then look at the world... (laughs) America has been in that situation for, you know, quite some time. Uh, it's, it's gotten much worse with Trump, but it has, you know, the tendencies in that direction are, are decades old. And until now, it, it has seemingly functioned, uh, at least, you know, uh, as a first approximation, it is, it is or it was a functioning country until the virus hit. So um, it's difficult to know how to answer this question just based on, on the evidence. And again, it depends on what happens over the next couple of weeks. Um, if the U.S. somehow pulls through this uh, crisis, notwithstanding the fact that a third of the people are believing conspiracies and not the science, well, then obviously it is possible to, to cope with a uh, such a large part of the population not being connected to to evidence-based uh, policy. But we'll see. Maybe they're not going to pull through terribly well, and then that would support what you were saying, which is that you can't run a democracy on, on that basis, which is also my belief that in the long run this can't work. And just to close by bringing things sort of back slightly closer to home, um, back in the UK, we discovered over the weekend that uh, Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's advisor, had been sitting in on the SAGE meetings with the Scientific Advisory Group. Um, given the personality he is, it's very hard to imagine his presence not affecting the conversation. Um is this crossover between those roles and the scientific community normal? 
And to what extent is Britain on the road to a similar position as the one we've been discussing in the US, where narrative and political positioning are more important than facts? Well, that's, uh, again, a very good question, and I wish I could answer that with, with any degree of confidence. What, what I can tell you is that I was quite shocked by that. I'm also quite shocked by the fact that uh, we don't even know who is on this expert committee. And I have been shocked for the last two months or so with the uh, uh, response of the UK government to this crisis. And um, I don't know if you know this, but about six weeks ago, I was one of nearly 700 behavioral scientists who signed a, an open letter to the government asking it to release its, uh, its, its behavioral evidence on which they claimed that their policies were based because... My colleagues and I, who initiated this letter, um, we had no idea what the government was talking about when they were refusing to introduce uh, stay-at-home orders early on. Um, so, yeah, I'm very concerned with the claim that the government is acting on behalf of science, but then, uh, you know, 700 of us didn't know what that evidence might have been. And, and to this date, no one has been able to show us what evidence the government was appealing to in, in that situation. I'm also concerned about the lack of transparency, and I'm concerned about the presence of political uh, operatives um, on, you know, their presence during deliberations that, that ought to be scientific. And let's not forget that the person in question masterminded the most mendacious and fact-free political campaign, I think, in, in, in history, that, that certainly in, in what I can remember in a um, Western democracy, namely the Leave campaign in 2016. So putting all of that together, the signs are not terribly positive uh, at the moment. Just to touch back on that open letter, was your concern that the science they were espousing was wrong or just that it was unclear how they had come to that conclusion? Well, um, I, we had just never heard of it. We, we, we had never heard of this concept of behavioral fatigue that was mentioned early on and that somehow you couldn't act on the virus now because people would get tired or something. We, none of us, I mean, none of the signatories had heard of any evidence. And this letter has had quite a bit of publicity and a lot of people know about it. And no one has come forward and told us, oh, you've overlooked this critical piece of research or this, uh, you know, the, the evidence over here. No one has yet, or to this date, no one has come forward to uh, draw our attention to anything we might have overlooked. So we're still puzzled and don't know what on earth that was uh, about. And of course, you know, that wasn't the only thing. There was also a lot of talk along the way uh, about the government following the science and um, that somehow the science told them not to issue stay-at-home orders. And again, among epidemiologists, I know that that was a deeply contested position. And, and there was one person, an epidemiologist from Harvard, who wrote a piece in The Guardian saying, you know, well, when I first heard about this, I thought it was satire. He couldn't believe that the government was actually pursuing this herd immunity strategy. And so, you know, there's a lot of indications here that a lot of things have gone 
suboptimally, to put it mildly. And that's uh, that, that's an extremely diplomatic way of uh, of putting it. Well, I think you know I'm in a difficult position, like like everybody else should be, and that is that I believe that some of the scientists who are advising the government are acting in good faith. I I do not yet have reason to to question that. And the problem is that if you put people who are acting in good faith in impossible situations or very difficult situations, then sometimes you get outcomes that uh, are, yeah, just have bad consequences. And just finally, um, from the issue we're discussing today, that the COVID crisis has forced populists to, to some degree, run back into the arms of experts. You know, I think we've all seen a downturn in the kind of anti-vax movement, things like that. But it has made, as we said, conspiracy fans double down. If you have one of these people in your own life or your own family, what's the best way to argue down a conspiracist? Is there a basic toolkit for this? Well, um, a colleague of mine and I, John Cook, and I just wrote a little handbook called the Conspiracy Theory Handbook, which is available for uh, uh, download. You just have to Google it where we summarize all the data that we know of in, in how to deal with um, those kinds of individuals. And basically, the answer is, to my mind, um, I'm actually not terribly interested in trying to change the mind of hardcore believers in a whole cluster of conspiracy theories because um, that is an extremely difficult task and is likely to be unsuccessful. I'm far more interested in talking to the public at large, uh, people in general who are not actually susceptible to that kind of nonsense, and to tell them ahead of time what it is um, that they have to expect and to caution them ahead of time that there will be conspiracy theories and to explain how those conspiracy theories will unfold. We call that approach inoculation or pre-bunking. And it is basically giving the public the tools to understand how they will be misled uh, by these conspiracy theorists. And I think that's a far more rewarding uh, place for my efforts than it is to talk to the very small number of individuals who are committed to these conspiracies. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us this morning and thank you for making my Bunker debut so interesting. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Listeners, you can follow him on Twitter at stworg. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then there's a Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday morning and the full-length episode comes out on Wednesdays. I'm Justin Quirk. Thanks for listening. See you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.